0: to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, the title of today's sermon is the goat question again. The goat question again, Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. Let's read it together. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. He said to them, when I sent you out without money, belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that, which, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with their transgressors for that, which refers to me, has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The goat question again. In this passage, we will see the gracious love of Jesus toward weak people. This passage provides incredible encouragement to us. We need to be reminded that in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of the fact that we fail time and time again, Jesus doesn't push us away. Instead, he patiently teaches us and leads us in sanctification. The GOAT question. The GOAT is is referring to um, a popular debate that happens from time to time, even in our culture. It stands for the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Now, if you grew up where I did in Kentucky, that refers to one debate. The greatest basketball player, of all time. See, in Kentucky, we don't care much for football. We're a basketball state. And so from time to time, you get this debate that arises about the GOAT, the greatest basketball player of all time. And for me, it's a pretty easy debate. Typically, it boils down to two figures. Is it Michael Jordan? Or is it LeBron James? And for me, it's easy. Michael Jordan is undoubtedly the greatest basketball player of all time. But you have those debates in sports. You get that with football. You get that with golf. Is it Tiger or is it Jack? You get that even in a lots of other arenas as well. Who is the greatest of all time? We know in the context here, Jesus has just shared with his disciples one of the most intimate moments you can imagine. They shared the last supper together. And he explained to them that the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover feast was found in his body and in his blood that would be, poured out on the cross. So Jesus has literally just shared this intimate moment with His disciples and they don't waste any time. Immediately they began arguing. They began disputing which one of them was the greatest. No, Peter, that's my seat. No, Matthew, You're a government operative. No, Thomas, you doubt too much. You're not the greatest, I'm the greatest. What, what are you guys doing? But I think it's pretty clear. Aren't you glad that the Bible contains passages like this? It gives weak people like us hope, right? That here's the truth, right? Jesus could have picked any 12 people. He could have gone out and literally chosen 12 of whomever he wanted. Think about it like this. What would it have been like if Jesus had gone out and chosen 12 Navy SEALs to be his followers? Here's the truth. They would have known the mission, they would have executed the mission with great precision. And they would most likely have never thought twice. They would have had one focus, accomplish the mission. But that's not who Jesus chose, was it? He chose weak people. He chose people that even though they can follow him for three years witnessing how many miracles, how many teachings they still don't get it. They still argue about which one of them were was the greatest. We can see ourselves here. here's the deal verse 24 as it says, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the great it reveals, The problem, it's the first thing we see, the problem of pride, the problem of pride. What was at the core of this dispute was pride. At the core of our sinful nature, you know what's there? Pride. Even though we weren't there in the upper room with Jesus, symbolically, we were. We were, we are like those disciples. At the core of our heart is this. We think about ourselves too much. It comes out like this. I deserve dot, dot, dot. No, in my relationships, I deserve this. In my job, I deserve this we think about ourselves too much. And we buy into this notion that if we only had a little more power, if we only had a little more prestige, if only Jesus could place us in that position of authority, then we could really be fulfilled. That's pride and that's sin. That's at the core of all sin. That's what the scriptures teach. That at the core of every sin is this problem of pride. The Puritans read and wrote and thought a lot about this idea of pride. Here's a couple quotes I found from Puritan writers. One says this about pride. Pride loves to climb not as Zacchaeus, to see Christ, but to be seen. Another one says it like this, as sin is of the last enemy, so pride is the last sin that will be destroyed in us. Another one says it like this, when the devil cannot keep us from a good work, he will labor to make us proud of the work. And lastly, for the avoiding of the vice of pride, God allows men to fall into entire other vices to shame them who are not ashamed of pride. In other words, brothers and sisters, God does not tolerate our pride. God is not okay with our sin. The scriptures clearly teach it. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the disciples at this point have totally missed the point. In John's account of these upper room happenings, he gives us another detail that Luke doesn't give us here. Some of you may have already thought about it, but it's at this point or in this general time frame, that Jesus stands up in the middle of this dispute. He wraps a tunic around his waist. He falls to his knees and he starts washing the disciples' feet. I can imagine you could have heard a pin drop As they're arguing who's the greatest, the one who is the greatest falls down on the ground and begins performing the the task of the lowliest servant. And I can imagine that as water may have been still dripping from his hands, Jesus responds to their dispute in verse 25. And he says this, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. See, Jesus knows the problem and he knows where that problem comes from. So Jesus says this, you all have a faulty worldview. You start to believe the lies of the world. He says, look, look around at the culture. How do the kings of the Gentiles act with their authority? They demand to be served, right? They demand total allegiance, total worship in the case of Caesar. They demand total, and they take that authority and they literally lord it. Over their entire constituency. And Jesus says, Here's the problem with you, all disciples. You've believed that you can carry that philosophy into following me. You've believed still that the one with the most worldly power will win, that the one with the most influence and the most authority in the world's eyes is going to be the one that's the most successful in the kingdom of God. But look at the beginning of verse 26. Jesus says, but it is not this way with you. In other words, don't think like that. Don't believe those lies. Don't believe that having all this authority and power is what it takes to be powerful in the kingdom of God. Instead, Jesus says, verse 26, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. Of course, in that culture, the children were viewed as a problem to be managed. They were totally insignificant. And so what Jesus is saying is the secular view that you've bought into is you've got to have power and authority and prestige to be powerful. But Jesus is saying in the kingdom of heaven, it's the one who is the lowest. It's the one who the world views of as the most insignificant servant, the very one who washes the feet of other people. They will be the ones that have power in my kingdom. What an incredible truth here. Then in verse 27, Jesus gives them a great example. He says, for who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? In other words, when you go into a restaurant, who's greater? The people who are sitting down eating or the servers that are running back and forth to the kitchen and taking the orders and bringing the napkins. Of course, this was a rhetorical question. Jesus already knew what the disciples were thinking. They were thinking, of course, it's the people who are sitting and eating. And Jesus says at the end of verse 27, but I am among you as the one who serves let's give it a contemporary illustration maybe maybe some of you watch golf on TV or if you're like me you sleep while golf is on TV but if you'll notice something about golfers when they go to these tournaments you have the one who's actually playing golf and there's somebody that goes along with them. They're called the caddy, right? And when the caddy gets to the course, they put on some type of white jumpsuit or apron that covers up their clothing, literally. And it has the name of someone else on their back. Whoever they're caddying for, they put their, so all of their identity is wrapped up in the fact I am here to carry the clubs of this golfer. They don't take any of the shots. They just clean the clubs and hand a club to the golfer. When the, the golfer hits the ball into the bunker, they don't take a chip shot out. They pick up the rake and they go behind the golfer and they clean up the footprints and that kind of thing. And what Jesus is saying is, In this world, I'm not the golfer, I'm the caddy. I'm not the one that has the name and the power and the prestige. I have come to serve. We must grasp this truth that we have this problem of pride that takes place because we believe this lie of the world that we have to gain this power and this prestige and this status to be servants of the Lord, but not so. Let's skip down to verse 31. We'll come back to verse 28 in a moment. Now Jesus' attention shifts specifically to one of his disciples. In verse 31, he says this, Simon, Simon, you ready for this? For Jesus to call Peter Simon would have rung clearly in Peter's ears because Simon was the name that Peter had before he was Peter. Simon referred to Peter's former life, the life of of a fisherman. Remember, it wasn't until Jesus renamed Peter and said, I'll call you Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. And I'm sure for Peter, Peter loved this renaming because the name Simon means shaky, shaky, shaky. You see what Jesus is doing? Although Peter was this rock and although, God had an incredible plan for Peter's life. At this moment, Jesus knows Peter's faith. He knows Peter's sin. And he describes it by calling Peter, his former name, shaky, shaky. It's as if a mother calls out to their child and maybe none of you are Rebellious young kids like I was. And my mom would use my first name and my middle name at the same time. Anthony Wayne. I knew I was in trouble. In the same way, Jesus calls out, Simon, Simon. And Peter's ears are lifted up and Jesus explains this to him. Satan has demanded Permission to sift you like wheat. Now, there's an important truth here for followers of Christ Satan doesn't have any authority over our lives. You should say amen right there. That's an incredible truth. Satan doesn't get free reign over our lives. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The scripture is clear that nothing can pluck us out of the hand of Christ, there is security there. Read the book of Job. Even in Job's life, Satan had to come and ask permission to do something to Job. And in the same way, Jesus is telling Peter here, Satan has come and has asked permission to sift you and to do these things for you Satan's about to attack you, Peter. But then one of the most incredible and encouraging phrases in all the Bible is found at the beginning of verse 32. But I prayed for you. You see the love and the care of Christ for Peter? It's the same for us. That Jesus loves us and He cares for us and he prays for us. The book of Romans says he makes intercession for us. The book of Hebrews says that he is our great high priest who continually makes intercession on our behalf. And in this way, we can be encouraged that while the evil one has plans to disrupt our lives, Jesus, intercedes for us. And not only does he pray, look at what he promises to Peter toward the end of verse 32. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It goes, Peter. I'm not going to leave you out there. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to turn you back to me once again. And once you're turned back, Use that to go strengthen others. Brothers and sisters, have you ever found yourself at the point of desperation or you were ministered to by Christ and he restored you? Maybe you fell away. Maybe there was a period of your life where you weren't pursuing the things of the Lord like you knew you should have and the grace of God picked you up out of that and turned you back. The scripture says one of the reasons Jesus did that in your life is so that you can go strengthen your brothers. To use that to encourage other brothers and sisters who are struggling, to encourage them, look, I've been where you are and here's some scriptures that encourage me. I'll be praying for you and to use that to lift them up. We're like this, we're like Peter. You would think at this point, Peter would say, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for these incredible truths. Thank you for sharing these things with me. I'm going to try my best to follow you and not so much. Look at what Peter does. Verse 33, he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. On the surface level, it can sound like at this point, Peter's saying, Lord, I'm committed to you. But what Peter was really saying is, I can do these things in my own strength. I finally made it to the point where I have enough strength within me that I can go and never fall again. Maybe you've got experiences like that in your life like I have. Maybe you can look at back at periods of your, time, of your life and say, I experienced the work of God in my life. It was a time of revival. It was a time of awakening. And I made these commitments. Lord, if you help me get through this, I'll, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. If you'll sustain me through this difficult time, if you'll pull me out of this, then I'm... I'm gonna serve you and never look back. And maybe for you like me, you've made those commitments and there have been days where you fell back and you fell away. Here's the incredible truth of the love of Christ. Jesus doesn't give up on us. At this point, we wouldn't blame Jesus if he looked at this group of people and said, you know what, I tried. I spent this time with you guys and you just don't get it. So let me just move on. Let me find some new followers and I'll help them get it. But that's not the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is to sustain us and to give us grace to restore us. Jesus says here, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. But there's some significance there. Number one, they didn't have alarm clocks. So Jesus was talking about a specific period of time that before the morning comes, Peter's going to deny him. But I think also Jesus uses this rooster crow as a gracious wake-up call to Peter. Let's, let's look at it. Flip over one page to Luke chapter 22 in verse 60. Luke twenty-two sixty. 60. This is the last time Peter denies Christ, the third time. But Peter said to him, man, I do not know what you're talking about talking about who is Jesus. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Look at this verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. See, Jesus uses this rooster three times. On the third time, Peter denies him. The rooster crows. Peter then, it's this alarm in his mind. He looks to Christ. And Christ is looking at him and says, come back. It's the gracious love of Christ. He doesn't give up on this group of guys in the upper room arguing about the greatest. And he doesn't give up on us. He loves us. And this is his heart. This is why we need to be gracious with people in our lives. We are to extend this grace. We are to extend this grace in all of our relationships and happenings with other people. You wanna know why our relationships and why some of our marriages are so messed up? Because we're not gracious. Because we wanna be served instead of serving. Uh, I hear it well, I'll never forget, be gracious. Well, I, be gracious. Well, they, be gracious. But you don't understand my situation, be gracious. The scriptures say, the king of the Gentiles act like this and like that, but not so among you. I am the one, Among you who serves, go and serve. Let's pray. Lord, the fact that you would choose weak sinners like us, who although we've been saved by your grace, we continue to mess up and be faithless and to fall short. But Lord, just as you didn't give up on your disciples, verse 28 says that they had stood with you in your trials and that one day they would sit with you as you eat and drink in the kingdom that was to come. So even as we celebrated this morning the Lord's Supper and remembered your sacrifice on the cross, we too look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will sit with you and share in food and drink and true fellowship where sin will no more have its hold on us. But Lord, until that point, may we be faithful to serve you and to serve others. Lord, if there'd be somebody here today that's never understood the gospel message, the fact that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, that anyone could repent of their sins and trust fully in the work of Christ on the cross that they could be saved today and be one of your followers. Lord, may today be the day of that salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.